You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. When Kurt Anderson started working on his new podcast, Nixon at War, he thought he knew a fair amount about Richard Nixon's presidency, including two defining experiences his 1968 campaign promised to end the Vietnam War, and his 1973 resignation due to Watergate. Devastating but unrelated events, or so he thought. The surprising connection between those two are at the heart of Nixon at War. You may know Kurt Anderson from his award-winning radio program Studio 360. He's a prize-winning novelist and historian whose three most recent books, Evil Geniuses, Fantasyland and You Can't Spell America Without Me were all New York Times bestsellers. Anderson says to understand Nixon's plans for Vietnam, you need to appreciate how much was at stake for Nixon when he ran in 1968. Richard Nixon, despite the fact that he he was not a beloved figure in America as vice president, he had a very kind of meteoric young career as a very young man had never really been in politics right out of World War II, was elected to the House in California, elected promptly after two terms to the Senate in California, before he had even had a couple of years in the Senate, was picked as vice president by Dwight Eisenhower. And, and so then, of course, he was going to run for president in 1960 and, and, and barely lost, but then lost again when he ran for governor of California. So this incredible rise, this recent fall, and this is a guy who— Never felt comfortable in his own skin with the world, didn't like socializing, was this weirdo, this resentful, paranoid weirdo who had done really well and now it was all slipping away. This was his last chance. This was his last chance to get back at the Kennedy, Ivy League elites who had beaten him in 1960. He'd moved to the heart of it, right? He'd moved to the Upper East Side of Manhattan after he got beaten for the governor of California. And and just right there in the middle of it where everyone hated him and he hated them. But by God, he was going to do it. And and so this was this real vengeance-filled comeback attempt. That's where he is as, as a figure. I often think that someone is chosen 
as vice president who can come in handy to do things the president won't do. Eisenhower was probably the last president of the United States chosen by acclamation, did not want to be the president, was pressured into doing that. Not a details guy at that point in his life, wanted to go play golf and take it easy. So he brings Nixon in by my lights to do the dirty work. Who better than Nixon to do dirty work? I mean, Eisenhower needed somebody who was a political hitman and enforcer and so forth because he wasn't going to micromanage that way, Eisenhower. And Nixon cuts his teeth on Alger Hiss and all this kind of pumpkin papers and all this other stuff. He's an anti-communist tool, if you will, uh, during a time when anti-communism seemed to many people in the country the right thing to be doing. My, my favorite scene about the American 1950s is in Manchurian Candidate when Angela Lansbury's there with her husband and he says, uh, there are 105 communists in the government. I said there were 145 how many are there? 189. He just keeps changing the number right in the same paragraph that he's talking. Which is not unlike uh, certain moments in Joe McCarthy's real life right. where he was saying, you know, he, he, he changed the number all the time. No, I mean, you know, the Soviet Union, having been our buddies in World War II, suddenly were not our buddies and suddenly had the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb. Anti-communism got out of control and, and created McCarthyism, but it wasn't. It wasn't nuts to be frightened of the Soviet Union, even though it went crazily too far. And yeah, Richard Nixon saw this as how he could make his career and did. And making an enemy of the people out of Alger Hiss, along with J. Edgar Hoover, in the, around 1950 was the way he did it. And it worked. And squishy, soft Dwight Eisenhower, who, by the way, had won World War II for the Allies, yes, yes. Uh, picked this anti-communist, as you say, tool— Hitman to uh, show that he was good as an anti-communist, uh, even though that didn't stop the John Birch Society later in the 50s and into the 60s of claiming that Dwight Eisenhower was a conscious stooge of the Soviet Union. Well, you know, it's funny when I think when you say Eisenhower, oh, P.S., he won World War II. Yes, but I always think Eisenhower's career, even though you think that there's an inextricable link between the military and the government, at that point there wasn't necessarily one. And, and, and the man that won World War II, of course, exited the office in his farewell speech warning about the, creating the phrase military-industrial complex, blah, blah, blah. But what I always think is, I say Eisenhower to me as president was like as if Ted Williams was president. <laughs> it's like he's a guy that won all these games. He was a hero. But he wasn't necessarily what we could— we equate now with the president no, as, no. as, as an executive. You know? No, and figurehead is unfair too, but he was he was a hero and then beat twice the same liberal elite egghead Emily Stevenson <laughs> who was running against him. You mention in passing Lee in the piece about your own background and your own family and for your Republican household, would you say when Nixon is elected in 68, where are you? Well, when Nixon's elected in 68, I am just turned 14. You're 14. And, and your parents were pro-Nixon. Oh, definitely. I was pro-Nixon when I was 13. <laughs> I, I was I was a little teenage Republican. Went to teenage Republican camp. Had a, had a poster of Nixon on my wall. I wish I had photographs of that whole you had, you had a poster of Nixon on your wall? I did, indeed. In terms of decorating your room, you were like the Roger Stone of your generation. I, I hate to say that. But you tattooed him on the wall. A little bit. But then, again— you know, summer of 68 came, my older brother and sisters took me in hand, and by the fall, I was a hippie. Now, <laughs> comparatively speaking. Yes. Now, you have how many siblings? It's you plus three? It is me plus three. And the other ones were more liberally uh, inclined well, than you? they were older. So I was the youngest, and they'd gone through the countercultural transformation ahead of me. 
It was the one window where your siblings were more politically evolved than you were. Uh, that didn't last long. <laughs> they, they definitely, definitely were. Politically, culturally, all that. They were, you know, 15, 18, 21. So they were into the late 60s. And, and uh, What happened to you when you were 14? Uh, I don't know. I smoked pot. I, I started reading other books and other things than William F. Buckley Jr. And uh, I self-radicalized, yeah. Alec. <laughs> Um, kind of. But, but no, I... I uh, but your parents did Republicans. Oh, absolutely. Although, interestingly, I, I described the kinds of Nebraska Republicans my parents were, which is to say atheists, big public radio enthusiasts when, when public radio began, big environmentalists, and, and pro-choice, and so on and so on. And my mother, who outlived my father, finally left the Republican Party at the end of in the 1990s because it was no longer her party. Gasp. Did she vote for Bill? She probably didn't <laughs> vote for Bill, but she started. Uh, Bob Kerry, who was our senator, was a sort of her entryway drug to becoming a Democrat. Her gateway drug. It was, yeah. yeah. Now, 68, I'm 10 years old. Big turning point for me politically through the eyes of my father and through the lens of his progressive. He was a Democratic committeeman in our town and so forth. Through the, his eyes, uh, and this is after uh, Kennedy is killed, of course, so everybody's just, you know, just... Just seething with emotion. Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy on 68, obviously. So we're watching the convention, and it's like, are you rooting for the Chicago police, or are you rooting for the demonstrators? Who are you rooting for? My dad was rooting for the protesters. He wasn't anti-police. He was a very, very middle-of-the-road Democrat, but he was rooting for the protesters. And I'm wondering, what was that like for you? Were your parents rooting for the Chicago cops? No, they weren't. They were the extinct species of decent liberal Republicans, although they considered themselves conservative and were kind of Barry Goldwater fans back then. But as the party moved right and they didn't, they felt they didn't have a party. So, no, they weren't in favor. But were the issues more important to them? Military? Uh, Strong military was somewhat important, but conservation actually was a huge thing for them. And actual liberty not to be run by religious nuts because they were anti-religious, really. And they wanted to live a free life with as few, you know, rules and regulations as possible possible, really. And my father also, his his profession, he was a lawyer and, and he his specialty was labor law, representing corporations and management. And so he was not viciously anti-union. And in fact, subsequently, school teachers against whom he negotiated contracts have said to me since he died, like, you know, your dad was always a decent guy and he always was fair. And so that made me Somebody feel good. had to represent management. Well, exactly. <laughs> so I was the opposite of a red diaper baby. Yeah. Um, you were a boss baby. I, I, so, something like that. You were suit and tie, baby, uh, with a briefcase. Well, I wasn't. I didn't go that whole Alex Keaton thing ever. Although, in retrospect, I guess you could you could see that. I mean, as no, as a 12, 13-year-old, I must have been an insufferable little dick, you know, with my little Republican talking points. But, but as you mentioned, I'm conveniently using you uh, and your family to frame what Republicanism was back then. You say Goldwater Republican on in the heartland, but it versus New York, it was Rockefeller Republican. Correct. Where the whole thing was like, we don't give a shit about abortion. We don't give a shit about you want to order a gay wedding cake. Just lower my taxes and cut the regulation on my business. Exactly. And my parents were very pro-civil rights. And my mother, until she left the party, always referred to it as the party of Lincoln. The party of Lincoln. We're the party of Lincoln. Everett Dirksen was, was her and their hero, who, by the way, helped. Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So, you know, they were economic conservatives, absolutely, and they believed in a strong military. But all the other stuff, all the culture war stuff, that didn't—which that, wasn't part of republicanism very much back then until Richard Nixon made it so, was not their cup of tea at all. Now, I don't expect you to— 
concur with me here, but before we launch into Nixon full-blown in the war, I want to just go trace backwards and say that if Ellsberg, who himself uh, was a self-described hawk during the period prior to the Pentagon Papers and, and working at RAND, eventually realizes this policy is catastrophic and immoral. But I'm assuming that when the truth of the Pentagon Papers, when the RAND Corporation submits their report, that's around what year? 67? Uh, no, 68 they finished it. It was, it was really right before Nixon became president that they finished the Pentagon Papers. So there was, was it safe to assume that kind of information, that specific cache of paperwork, was not made available to Johnson? Johnson did not know about the RAND report? Or uh, well, it, it was actually, I mean, RAND was part of it, and, and Ellsberg worked for RAND, as you say. Um, but it was it was a Defense Department report. Commission. Uh, commission. Yeah. And so it was done under commission under McNamara and LBJ and, and finished under Clark Clifford and LBJ. So, yeah, Johnson was very much aware of it. Did it go to him? I, I, I don't actually know that, but it was secret. So, But I'm always wondering, uh, and I've said this to his face, to Bob Caro, you obviously have all this worship of Johnson and his political acumen and the kind of heft and the grandeur of his career and his position in our history and how determinative it was in our history uh, beyond Kennedy's death in 63 and what he did in those years. But let's face facts. At one point, did he know that the Vietnam War was wrong and immoral? And why don't you call? him on that. And I'm wondering, in, in the research you did, did Johnson know before he left? Yes, he definitely did. I mean, there, we have a bit of a phone call he'd had back in 1966, you know, with Eugene McCarthy saying, I, I, I want to get out of it as much as you do, Gene. I hate it. Uh, you know, it's awful. Um, I mean, he was not a, you know, a moralist in the, in the Bobby Kennedy sense, say. He, you know, but he knew it was a bad deal, and he made a mistake, and he needed to get out. And then, you know, in 68, and, and as you hear in this show, with his conversations with Nixon and his conversation with his Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, and other people, like, I will tell America I'm not running, and I got nine months to try to really start our way out. Johnson wants to get out. Yep, wants to. And Nixon doesn't want to get out because he wants it to stay so he can get us out. He can be the hero. Well, he wants to, yes. He wants I to mean, take credit for the, it. He, Nixon wants it both ways. Nixon wants to get elected by saying, these Democrats have met, bungled this war. I'll be a tough-minded guy who will finish it right and, and soon. But, but then when, when peace is at hand in 1968, Nixon goes, uh-oh, this is going to beat me. This is going to elect Hubert Humphrey, the vice president. And we, I got I to gotta postpone this peace thing. So explain to the listeners what's the thing Johnson tells Nixon in the phone call not to do that Nixon does. Well, John, Johnson tells Nixon not to do multiple times. Nixon says he's not going to do it multiple times in the fall of 68, which is— talk and, and say, I'll do a better deal for you, South Vietnam. I'll do a better deal for you, North Vietnam. Elect me, everybody, and I'll end this war because I won't have this Johnson-Kennedy baggage. And and he keeps quiet for a little bit, but then he, Nixon, freaks out, thinks he's going to lose and just like goes full Nixon and tries to mess up. These Paris peace talks to end the Vietnam War had really started to take off and there was about to be a big breakthrough and Nixon didn't want that to happen a week or two so before the do? election. Well, he does a lot of stuff. Most <laughs> well, He does this thing that he spent the rest of his life covering up. He gets this fascinating woman named Anna Chenault, this Chinese teenage reporter. Provocateur, shall we say. Well, but she's, she deserves her own podcast. She deserves <laughs> her own biopic. Anyway, she meets this, uh, uh, as a 19-year-old reporter in China during World War II, meets this general, marries him, they move to America. He dies right away. She's rich. She's this glamorous, rich 
anti-communist right-wing widow living at the Watergate, like too good to be true, and becomes Nixon's biggest female donor and finagler. She also is good pals in her anti-communist way with the South Vietnamese ambassador to the U.S., introduces the two of them at this secret meeting in the summer of 1968, at which Richard Nixon says, okay, Mr. Ambassador, you and President Tu of South Vietnam, you've got to understand this woman, your pal, Anna Chenault, is my person to you. She, she is my, whatever I want you to do, she's the person telling you that. And when a couple, few months later, when the election gets close and this, and this peace breakthrough is about to happen, he, Nixon, and Nixon's people set out what he called the dragon lady to go tell Tu and the ambassador, no, 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 don't go along with this peace deal. You got you to gotta yeah. make sure this doesn't happen. You'll get a better deal when we come in. You'll get, not, and I'll owe you, right? And so don't make anything happen before November 5th, you know? It reminds me of the whole the hostage crisis with Carter. Right. And they go, and they basically, if I'm not mistaken, they do the same thing. Don't release the hostages till we get in there. We got to get rid of Carter. Is it similar? Well, it's, it's comparable. This was an ongoing war. This wasn't a few dozen hostages. Right. This was an ongoing war where hundreds of Americans were dying every week. And they're saying, let's extend this so I can get elected. I mean, what's interesting to me about this part of the story, it was eclipsed in history and in the popular understanding by Watergate. But this is where it all began. This is the thing he did, which was illegal and, and a federal crime, undoubtedly, a citizen messing around with foreign policy, you know, in this very specific way. And then he was worried the rest of his time, alive, and certainly as president, that this was going to come out and uh, lead to his downfall. So what did he do? He committed burglaries that led to his downfall. author and podcaster, Kurt Anderson. If you want to deep dive on the Vietnam War, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's 18-hour documentary is a good place to start. Ken Burns told me he screened a final version for Senator John McCain, a decorated POW who was particularly fascinated by the interviews with North Vietnamese soldiers. What you begin to realize is that at that point of combat, which is where human beings are at their very worst, they're really good at killing the right. other people and avoiding right. being killed or all this stuff happens. It's hell. What, what, it's hell. Yeah. And we couldn't even possibly imagine what it's like. And we've tried so hard in so many films from Civil War through World War II into this. But they recognize each other. And they, that recognition is transcendent. And so he wants to see what they're saying. And what they're saying sounds so exactly like our Marines and our Army guys. And so you have a Marine, for example, Carmar Lantis, who says, you know, we're not the dominant species on the planet because we're nice, right? And people complain that, oh, the military turns young men into killing machines. I'd suggest it's only finishing school. Hear more of my conversation with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick at heresthething.org. After the break, Kurt Anderson talks about Nixon and Henry Kissinger's fateful decision to bomb neutral Cambodia. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. 
For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors so you pay only what you owe you can even have health lock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills to date health lock has helped its members save over 130 million dollars bottom line insurance alone isn't enough to save visit healthlock.com do it today before you see another health care provider that's healthlock.com I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Kurt Anderson says Richard Nixon had a number of close advisors, but only listened to a few. Henry Kissinger definitely had his ear and his trust, even though they mistrusted each other, because they were both manipulating guys. They were scorpions in the Oval Office together. But Bob Haldeman, his chief of staff, he, he thought was a smart political guy and a tough guy and all that. But like in terms of, oh, should I get out of Vietnam sooner rather than later? Kissinger, if he was of a mind to do that, I think could have done that and could have, you know, could have talked him out conceivably of all kinds of things. Did he have his trust, though, because when he gives that speech and you're talking about like episode five or six, he gives that speech and Kissinger, there's a long clip of Kissinger going, I've never heard a speech delivered like this. The greatest speech that no, an actor never could have read that, written that speech. And he said, I think uh, I, I was as good as any actor in Hollywood, he says. And, and, and what's, what's the speech again he gives? There was the famous 
silent majority speech back in the fall of 69. Sure. He gave, but this was afterwards. And Kissinger actually says the one non-ass kissing thing in these hours of tapes with Nixon. He says, he says, but that wasn't as well delivered as this one, Mr. President. And he says, yes, you're right. And he, we run that so long, those calls. Kissinger called him, I think, five times that night just to keep trying to keep giving him the, the drug. Was praise the only thing that cemented Nixon's trust for Kissinger? Was that all no. Kissinger had to do? No, that was part of the ante. He, that was the entry admission. He had to do that just constantly, obviously, because Nixon was so needy for it. But no, they had actual substantive conversations about politics and geopolitics and Russia and Vietnam and all the rest. But they were both amoral people and just full of just amazing to me, listening to these hours of tape, kind of grotesque amorality about killing Killing on a massive scales, whether it's the My Lai Massacre or tens of thousands and then eventually millions in Cambodia. Now, much is made, not by you, you you mentioned it glancingly, Nixon was a profound anti-Semite, apparently, that never entered Kissinger's mind. Kissinger was unaware of that. Oh, he was fully aware of it. He just had to shut up and— Suck it up. Yeah, not be, be one of the good Jews, as Nixon more than once talked about. Um, and, you know, William Sapphire, who later became a New York Times columnist, was Jewish, and his and Agnew's most, uh, you know, Nixon and Agnew-esque speechwriter before he went off to become a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist. So he was of two minds. I mean, he wasn't, you know, Ku Klux Klan committed and devoted to his anti-Semitism, but he was, uh, and again, it's there all over the tapes, especially when he was with Bob Haldeman alone and they could just expose and and share their anti-Semitic feelings. But no, I mean, he understood that Kissinger was a really smart guy who was as ruthless and amoral as he was and it was a match made in hell. The, <laughs> you and I worked on a book together, our Trump parody book. But I would say to people that I, I found it just absolutely, I was dumbstruck by how Trump was able to draw together so many bad people. I thought, were there really this many bad people who wanted to come to Washington and to pervert the course of this government for, to these purposes. I thought I couldn't even imagine there were that many of them. Can the same be said of Nixon, or was Nixon not as bad? It's a complicated question. I was talking about the other day comparing Trump to Nixon. Now, I mean, on the one hand, Nixon had actual noble ambitions of being a world and accomplishing good things. And China, the Soviet Union, uh, those were good things. And Kissinger helped him. Stipulating those. NEA, EPA? Oh, my God. On domestic politics, he was the most liberal president between, you know, LBJ and Joe Biden. I mean, literally. (laughs) I mean, but what he did with and in Southeast Asia is unforgivable because it was, to him, a sideshow to the big game with China and the Soviet Union. It was just, let's not let Saigon fall to the commies before November 72. That, That was it. I mean... After his first year where he realized, nah, we're not going to win this. They're not going to stand up. This is going to fall. I just got to make sure it doesn't fall before November 72. It was inexcusable, and it was awful. Now, he had bad people. Haig. Well, Haig was— When you hear the quote, I just want to interject here. When you hear the quote when Haig says, we're within an eyelash of victory, he says. And this is in 1970-71. This is like, no, we aren't. General Haig. And no, Haig was his military right-hand guy throughout this. And what's— Extraordinary about that 
line from Haig at that point is Kissinger and Nixon knew that wasn't true. They, they knew that this was a lost game, but that we couldn't speed up the withdrawal because then Saigon would fall and he would have lost Vietnam. There's no comparison between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon in IQ and even in morality, although I mean— And experience. Yeah. So, But I don't want to say, and therefore, Nixon's good. I mean, in, in the argument between who's the worst president, it's a kind of a tie between an apple and an orange. You know, I mean, Nixon was intelligent. Nixon actually had some things he wanted to do. Nixon was not bad as a domestic president. He, Henry Kissinger, really smart guy, on and on and on. But what they did in Vietnam and what they did in Watergate, what he did in Watergate to undermine American confidence in this possibly fatal way, along with extending Vietnam, is this one-two punch. I mean, that's that's just inexcusable. I mean, if <laughs> I mean, we'll see, right? Or maybe we'll see if we live long enough what happens to this country. But was Richard Nixon more responsible for its downfall if we come to a downfall or Donald Trump? Eh, both together. And and in a certain way, which I didn't really realize before, working on this piece, you know, marinating in Nixon for a year during the last year of the Trump administration, I saw the connections between them, even though one was a moron, one was more mentally ill than the other, one was a bigger liar than Nixon. But you saw how Richard Nixon began the rot in the Republican Party uh-huh. And in just the cynicism and nihilism that became so big in, in American well, it's politics. Beginning, it's the beginning of the Republican mantra of he's a sociopath, but he's our sociopath. Well, yes, exactly. Even though they got rid of him. And, and when people, as people have said to me as I've been talking about this uh, podcast, well, Watergate, we got rid of him and it's all good and we're all fine. Well, yeah, and it was good what Baker and Goldwater and all those Republicans did and said, Mr. President, you got to get out of here. You got to resign. This, this isn't this is no longer tenable. But there's a certain self-flattering focus on that as opposed to what was just beginning to happen in the Republican Party. It's like, you know, don't end in 1974 when Gerald Ford takes over and everything's good. We right. didn't have tanks in the street. And look, the, peaceful the getting, trans- the getting rid of Nixon was enough. Yeah. No, and, and, and I get it. And it was good thing that we did that. But like— here in 2020, 2021 land, we haven't had that moment where, oh, good, we're safe now, you know? No. Well, I mean, I mean, apropos of the book that we did and the whole crap I did on SNL and so forth with Trump, and people would ask me for some thumbnail analysis, and they'd say, Do compare Trump and Nixon. And I'd say, well, I'm going to paraphrase, and I'd say, all honorable presidents are the same, and all dishonorable presidents are dishonorable in their own way. You know, but they're, 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 you really can't compare them. They're very, very, very different people. And again, Nixon, because of the breadth of his experience and Trump with none. But what I do see is that both of them brought a lot of bad people with them. I mean, Haldeman and Ehrlichman were bad people. Haig is a bad guy in terms of what what I believe the role of government should be. Lately, we've been reading about, as we already knew, but the details of Trump's politicization of the Justice Department, his attorney general. Well, there was Richard Nixon who had taken his campaign manager, John Mitchell, and made him attorney general (laughs) and just made him like part of the criminal gang that then went on to do Watergate and cover it up and all the rest. So that politicization of the Department of Justice that were all, look what he did, look what Trump did. Well, this guy did it, you know, 45, 50 years ago. Yes, exactly. Now, obviously, 
something that is as sweeping as this in terms of history. There's a lot of history there. Nixon becoming elected in 1968 and why. Uh, uh, you know, as I've told people, it's like Dracula pulls the stake out of his heart, gets out of the coffin, and goes and marries your girlfriend. You're like, you just can't believe the improbability of this whole fucking thing. But in the breadth of this, 68, the convention, Nixon wins, silent majority on through the war. I want to stop and take a moment because there's so much there to cover and talk about uh, the expansion of the war into Cambodia and Laos, which I viewed as war crimes. I mean, these are guys should have been prosecuted for war crimes. I mean, to me, the war crime that were committed were what they caused to happen in Cambodia, that they caused the crazy faction of communists in Cambodia to win the civil war that had barely started in 68, 69 when the Nixon presidency began. But then this bombing, this this relentless bombing of this neutral country of not very many people by the U.S. to get rid of those Viet Cong sanctuaries whipped up this civil war and certainly made it, you know, who are you for? The communists or these people who are sending thousands of tons of bombs into your homes every day and every week for year after year. And, of course, that made the Khmer Rouge eventually win that war and and the genocide of killing two million of their seven million fellow citizens. So what happened there really is, I mean, very arguably a war crime. It's not hyperbole. But, but yes, expanding the war when he was elected to end it and then thinking that they could at least be seen as not giving in, not bugging out. And, and maybe we can just scare the North Vietnamese a little bit enough to be more tractable at the peace talks. That's what going into Cambodia was about. That's what going into Laos was about. And just also a kind of bloody-minded desire to keep fighting and not— losing a war. Americans don't lose wars. We've never lost a war. That was for both of them, but especially I think Nixon, both of them meaning Kissinger and Nixon, but for Nixon, like, I just can't be the guy who loses the war and yeah, now I'm going to lose the war, but I'm going to just bomb the hell out of them, even on the way out, even if I can't do North Vietnam anymore. I I think it's literally, I want to kill as many of them as I can before I sign a document in Paris. Uh, Yes, which they justify to themselves in a rational way as, oh, we're we're getting, you know, it's, it's part of the negotiation process. But no, I mean, they really didn't get anything more than they could have gotten, you know, much earlier in the presidency, but they just kept at it. And it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely inexcusable. It's almost impossible, I guess. I mean, this is true of any president. We've imposed a contemporary psychoanalysis of them, uh, and and people posit things like if if all these guys had been given a really cursory psychiatric examination, they would have been, been ruled ineligible for the job, but no one more so than Nixon. And I feel like Nixon is somebody who, if only he had a friend, if only he had a counselor, if only he had someone who said to him, don't do this. I mean, you have a chance to become, I'm not going to say a great president because it was a very turbulent time, because Vietnam is the anti-communist thing overdone, if you will. Everybody knew if you studied Vietnam in college that they were not a Sino-based or Russo-based communist satellite. They were like, fuck you to the Chinese and fuck you to the Russians. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted to be their own independent country. And they would take from different people to fight the United States, which was a very wealthy country at that time. And we were doing the whole guns and butter thing, which would later come back to haunt us by spending trillions of dollars to fight a war halfway around, blah, 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 all the things we know about Vietnam and the kind of thumbnail way. But I do believe that Nixon is somebody who, if he only had an advisor that really had his heart, he could have become a very good president. Do you agree? I totally agree. And again, uh, a dozen years ago, I developed this contrarian view of Nixon as this 
reading about what he'd done and allowed to be done uh, domestically that we talked about earlier. I mean, between that and ending the war in Vietnam, if he'd done it more expeditiously and, and hadn't let the Pentagon Papers and everything else throw him off the rails and go go nuts, and then China and the Soviet Union, yeah, I think he would have been remembered as this unlikable guy he was, but as a really, really good president. Absolutely. I think eight years in the White House would have helped him erase the image of unlikable guy that he was. Well, I don't know. I mean, he was such an un-Californian Californian and a deeply <laughs> unlikable. Wingtip shoes on the beach, I was told. Exactly. Not a natural politician. <laughs> so beloved never. But he said he was going to end the war. He did. And look at all this other stuff he did. And look at China. No, he would be today absent Watergate and absent all the Vietnam craziness that I didn't really realize before doing this show led directly to Watergate. He would be not in the bottom five or ten. He'd be in the top five or ten. Best-selling author, Kurt Anderson. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend. And be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Kurt Anderson talks about how Nixon became fixated on winning over protesters at home. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. 
HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In the early morning of May 9th, 1970, Just days after four students were killed at Kent State University, Nixon went to the Lincoln Memorial to talk to protesters himself at 5 a.m. He recorded the experience on a dictaphone, which is memorialized in Kurt Anderson's podcast, Nixon at War. I walked over to a group of them and uh, walked up to them and shook hands. They were not unfriendly. As a matter of fact, they somewhat overawed and, of course, quite surprised. As one of the protesters said afterward, it was so freaky. Because I tried to explain my goals in Vietnam were the same as theirs, to stop the killing, to end the war, to bring peace. Our goal was not to get into Cambodia by what we were doing, but to get out of Vietnam. There seemed to be no... they, They did not respond. I hope that their hatred of the war, which I could well understand, would not uh, turn into a bitter hatred of our whole system, our country and everything that it stood for. I said, I know you, probably most of you think I'm an SOB, but uh, I want you to know that I understand just how you feel. Kurt Anderson says Nixon's frustration was that his plan to draw down U.S. troops while training the South Vietnamese just wasn't working. Nixon did start Vietnamizing the war pretty rapidly and significantly. Which I mean, means, for our listeners, means what? Which means saying, hey, this is not our war to win. The South Vietnamese, the non-communist southern half of this country that was divided after the French occupation failed in the 1950s between the North, who became communists, and the South, who, in the view of the communists, became the puppet of the United States. So Nixon is, is elected to end the war— And he begins reducing the draft. First year, withdrawing not very many troops, but then more and more in 1970. We had about half a million over there. We had 550,000 when he was elected and as many as 500 dying a week and 6,000 boys my brother's age and even my age almost being drafted every week. And and he brought all that down because he understood that was not politically tenable. And it was, for better or worse, all about politics for him. If I can end the draft— and reduce the number of Americans killed, he knew it would not— The country had doubts. It would not be a problem for him anymore. And so his approval ratings for how he was handling Vietnam stayed high for the almost the whole time. And they went up and down, and he responded by giving speeches and announcing further reductions in the draft and everything else. So Vietnamization was saying, hey, South Vietnam, it's on you. We're, we're getting out of here. We're not getting out of here immediately, but we're getting out of here, and therefore— you will be fighting your own war against your North Vietnamese brothers. 
during the time that you did this and you had mentioned getting into the weeds, quote unquote, in the research, what was something that surprised you that you found out? Well, I mean, not so much facts, although this Anna Chenault story, I, I had heard of her maybe, but I knew nothing about that. And it was interesting because he had covered it up. And then and then the Nixonites, to this day, the Nixon library still says, no, 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 that's not, don't even pay attention to that. Don't look in those files. Oh, no, no. Pay no attention to that woman in the Chanel dress in the well, corner. Well, exactly. So that was a, a, a kind of surprise to me. But these moments on the tape, it, the t- listening to the tapes gave me a sense of, their humanity or inhumanity that I just didn't have before, that I just, reading, I, you just don't, I didn't get as much as hearing them talking, admitting uh, we're screwed or l- laughing about massacres. All those things were just in the sense that I now feel as though I was there with these guys as they were running their horror show. So not so much facts, although I had heard, because it's well known, about this visit of Nixon's at 5 a.m. to hang with the protesters at the Lincoln Memorial, which is an amazing scene, and I think we did pretty good justice to it. But I never knew the thing that he then did at dawn and went to the empty Capitol alone and sat in his old chair where Representative Nixon sat. And then, as they're leaving, going through the statuary hall in the middle of the Capitol, there's this black woman mopping the floor at 6 a.m. in the morning, and he goes over to her and says, you know, my mother was a saint. You remind yes. me of my mother. You be a saint, too. I mean, it's this crazy scene. So so the details throughout of, of how they sound, how they interact, his his craziness. When Daniel Ellsberg appears and is arrested and is, is, admits, yeah, I'm, I'm the Pentagon Papers leaker, that he couldn't get Alger Hiss out of his mind. What happened? He he was a guy who worked in the State Department as a young man in the in the 1930s and into the 40s, and then ran a nonprofit. Was a big liberal guy, had been a communist as so many people had in the 1930s, and it was alleged and perhaps maybe probably true had given papers, not atomic secrets or anything, but had dealt with the the Soviets, and and then that was. I put it in a pumpkin. <laughs> that was part of the pumpkin yeah. thing. And that was that became a thing in 1948, 1949, 1950, when Richard Nixon was fresh to the house. And, and Richard Nixon rode that to prominence, really. The persecution, prosecution, call it what you will, of Alger Hiss the was, outing of Alger Hiss, was yeah. along with J. Edgar Hoover's help, was how Nixon became famous Mr. Anti-Communist, who wasn't a nut like Joe McCarthy. And that was his beginning of his career. So 20 years later, when there's this leak of the Pentagon Papers, wholly different thing. It's not about a Cold War. It's about this actual war we're fighting, and it's all—it's so different. But he sees it as just the same. It's another pinko guy, <laughs> and he's Jewish, to boot, doing this bad thing. And all the newspapers are not only supporting him, they're printing it. So he, he, to him, it was just, oh, it's, it's Alger Hiss all over again. It's communists against me all over again. It's the liberal elite all over again. And he kind of lost it. The thing that was surprising to me, even though it's silly, was I couldn't believe when Watts said when he was going to resign that he got up and took a swing at Kissinger. I thought to myself, I didn't think men had that kind of passion in that White House. Well, no. William Watts, he was the kind of administrator of the National Security Council. So he was an important guy. He made sure the trains ran on time in the National Security Council, which Nixon and Kissinger had made more powerful than it had ever been, of concentrating all the national security foreign policy decision-making policy 
policymaking in the White House. Watts was the guy that Kissinger had personally hired. And finally, it got too much for him, uh, as it did for other liberal Ivy League elitists that Kissinger had hired. And he quit and, yeah, took a swing at him. And then Haig, Al Haig, told him right after that, you can't quit. Your commander of chief is giving you an order. He said, well, I did, General (laughs) Haig. And as he says, and that was the end of my career in government. I mean, I'm of the belief that we've never recovered from the Vietnam War. Did that take hold of you while you're doing this work about just the kind of suffocating tragedy that was Vietnam? Absolutely. And how it combined under Richard Nixon with Watergate and all of the the undermining of the rule of law, of decency and everything else into one horrible, explosive thing that began— all of the things that we haven't recovered from. And the way Nixon used Vietnam and used the countercultural moment at the time and used all these things at the time politically to make this this fissure that had broken up between the hard hats and the hippies and all that, he turned into this unhealable wound. And this fissure became the chasm that Donald Trump, in his way— has been still exploiting, is still exploiting between the regular folks and the working class guys and these liberals and these professors and these newspaper people and turn into this permanent wound that we have never recovered from. And also the War Powers Act comes in 1973 during Nixon's second term, which has been flouted by Democrats and Republicans since. We've learned nothing about that, which is if we're going to invest all this power into a commander in chief and an executive without any of the advice and consent of the Congress. It was, among other things, the time when we still believed we hadn't had this happen yet, right? Presidents wage war. And here was a president the third president, to wage this particular war. We didn't know how to stop that or control that. That This was a whole new kind of war. So I don't want to excuse Congress's ineffectual exercise of power in the instance, but they didn't fall down on the job. Look at Iraq. I mean, fell down on the job again in the kind of expansive authorization of war that happened in 2001. But um, Evil Geniuses, Fantasy Land, your last couple of books, many books prior to that. And and again, you, I'm always uh, shellacking you and lathering you all the time, but, but effortlessly. Now, let's quote Nixon in his resignation speech to the staff when he turns to everybody and says, oh, this is not the most elegant house. But it's the best house because it has a heart. He says, that's great speech. And then he says, we don't say goodbye. The French have a word for it. Au revoir, he says. Au revoir to you, Kurt Anderson. Au revoir to you as well. Kurt Anderson, host of a new podcast called Nixon at War. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.